just as the second great awakening appeared to be settling down back to normal, um, Jesus showed up to extend it. And uh, he showed up in the offices of this lawyer, a man named Charles Finney, who he called into a ministry of evangelism. Charles Finney was an unlikely person. I mean, Jesus didn't get along too well with lawyers. And, uh, you, you know, you wonder, why did he choose a lawyer and not all of the, the many um, pastors who were available? But, you know, uh, he really does know what he's doing because Finney made an absolutely incredible evangelist. And uh, one of the things that, that Finney uh, saw the need to um, sort of oppose in his time was hyper-Calvinism. Okay, so people in the churches, um, many, many people, Calvinism had, had gripped the entire uh, church, it seemed, and, and so it, it produced a complacency. Well, God's going to do whatever God's going to do. And so Finney went to the opposite extreme, and he said, you can have revival anytime you want. All you have to do is be willing to do what God says you have to do in order to get it. So you have these two extreme positions, um, even to this day, and um, I'll, I'll be dealing a little bit more with that um, in, in the next teaching. But uh, for now, let me just say that it can't be quite as simple as uh, Finney said, but Finney's message about that was a needed uh, antidote to the poison of complacency based on hyper-Calvinism. And so Finney was, um, he was, he was going out and uh, because of Jesus' appearing to him, I mean, literally appearing in his law office, you know, so why could why could Finney basically say you can do it whenever you want when his own ministry was because of Jesus appearing to him? Um, but you know, it's like uh, he's going to go out and and uh, in the power of the Holy Spirit do amazing things so that whole villages are converted to Christ. One of the things that Finney is going to begin teaching, and he's he, I think he's the first one. Of, of any known theology is he's going to he's going to teach that there 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 is a baptism with the Holy Spirit there is an equipping of the saints with the power of God for witness and service and Finney's going to live that out he's going to teach that uh, it's not going to be a popular teaching by any means for several generations yet but um, this is the beginning of God inserting that and beginning to widen the, uh, the teaching of a baptism of the Holy Spirit for our witness and service. One of the things that Finney is going to, to demonstrate is a kind of a one-two punch uh, between prayer and evangelism. So there's going to be a guy named Father Nash who started out um, trying to be a pastor but didn't succeed and then he gets into what his real calling is, which is prayer, intercessory prayer. So Father Nash 
is going to go around to towns prior to Finney's arrival in those towns. And then he's going to clear the atmosphere. He's going to pray the place clear. And then Finney's going to come. And, and Charles Finney is going to realize that prayer is a necessary and important piece of what gets done. Of course, a lot of times he's going to, he's going to encourage prayer among the townspeople and in the churches. So let me uh, just uh, read to you a, a section from Finney's memoirs to give you an idea of what it was like when God came to town. And these are, this is, again, times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord, moving westward, moving westward, and let's look at what it was like at Rome, New York. I should say a few words regarding the spirit of prayer which prevailed at Rome during this time. Indeed, the whole town was full of prayer. Go where you would, you heard the voice of prayer. If you were walking down the street and two or three Christians happened to be together, they were praying. Wherever they met, they prayed. Wherever there was a sinner unconverted, especially if he showed any opposition, you would find some two or three brothers or sisters agreeing to make him a special subject of prayer. The state of things in the village and in the surrounding area was such that no one could come into the village without feeling awe-stricken with the impression that God was there in a peculiar and wonderful way. As an example of this, I will relate a particular incident. The sheriff of the county resided in Utica. There were two courthouses in the county, one in Rome and the other at Utica. Consequently, the sheriff, Bryant by name, came to Rome quite frequently. He later told me that he had heard of the state of things at Rome, and he, together with many others in Utica, had laughed a great deal about it. But one day it was necessary for him to come to Rome. He said that he was glad to have business there, for he wanted to see for himself what things were really like. He was driving in his one-horse sleigh without any particular impression in his mind at all until he crossed what was called the Old Canal, a place about a mile from the town. He said as soon as he crossed the canal, a strange impression came over him, an awe so deep that he could not shake it. He felt as if God permeated the whole atmosphere. He said that this feeling increased the whole way until he came into the village. He stopped at Mr. Franklin's hotel, and the stable man came out and took his horse, he observed, he said that the stable man looked just like he himself felt, as if he were afraid to speak. He went into the hotel and found the gentleman there with whom he had business. He said that they were both so obviously shaken that they could hardly attend to business. He reported that several times in the course of the short time he was there, he had to rise from the table abruptly and go to the window and look away, trying to divert his attention to keep from weeping. He saw that everyone else appeared to feel just as he did. Such an awe, such a solemnness, such a state of things he had never had any conception of before. He quickly concluded his business and returned to Utica, but never to speak lightly of the work at Rome again. And a few weeks later, in Utica, he himself became converted. As the work progressed, almost the whole population of the town became involved. 
nearly every one of the lawyers, merchants, physicians, almost all the principal men, indeed nearly the whole adult population of the village were saved. Well, what we want to do at this point is to, to ask ourselves, all right, lots of people got saved. Churches began, began to uh, be crowded. And um, this is the kind of thing that we're used to examining in connection with revival or spiritual awakening. But what I want to do is to say, how did this affect righteousness? You know, how did it affect social righteousness? And particularly, we're looking at the area of slavery. Okay, so, so did, was there a connection between Finney's evangelism and the work of carrying on the revival and the decline uh, of slavery and the whole abolition of slavery? And uh, you see, we're, we're, used to, we're used to separating these areas. We look at revivals of religion over here, we're, we're, we're looking at the abolition of slavery over here, and we don't realize that what God did, not, did in the hearts of these people over here caused this other thing over here. And so uh, let me just read for you. Uh, this is from a book called Arguing About Slavery by William Lee Miller, uh, William Lee Miller, historian at uh, the University of Virginia. Uh, this is the man here, <laughs> a serious historian. And this is his summary of um, the way the argument about slavery was going. And he, he really does trace the whole thing from beginning to end. But here's, here's a summary. It's like the, the whole country was caught in this controversy back and forth. But, and then, uh, this is what he says, how we got out, how we got out of it. He says, the new abolitionism had its most energetic support in the areas where the revivalism of the time was strongest. At the center of the new abolitionism were young Presbyterian and congregational ministers of a trailblazing sort. Perhaps ministers is not the right word for them. Many were indeed converted in some high-octane religious setting. That's Finney right there. And, and did go to seminaries. I will share that with you in a minute. And were ordained. They all did make their anti-slavery case in distinctly Christian terms, very much so. They did indeed have the style and approach of the preacher or evangelist. Nevertheless, they characteristically did not serve churches. They traveled, they spoke, they wrote, they distributed tracts, they edited journals, they agitated, they were mobbed, they did those things full time. That was their job, that was almost their denomination and their community of faith. Well, what I want to do is to tell you how that got to go. How, how did that happen? And it was all centered around Lane Seminary in uh, Cincinnati, Ohio which was overseen by President Lyman Beecher. And Lyman Beecher had been involved in the Great Awakening, and his family was probably one of the most central and important Christian families in our country at the time. So Lyman Beecher, though, had uh, a problem. He had to uh, 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 
pay for his seminary. He had to raise money for it. And in order to do that, he would go, he would take trips through Kentucky and other states raising money. Well, there were people in his seminary and in, in his own family who, during the course of these uh, uh, friend-raising, fundraising trips, saw what was happening in slavery and were absolutely appalled by it. One of those uh, people was Harriet, his daughter. We'll get to her in a minute. But then there was the whole student body who decided to have a, a big debate. And this debate went on for weeks. It became uh, the center of the big debate that had been in our country. And it, it ended up with uh, this man, Theodore Dwight Weld, uh, being uh, uh, the key leader of, of the student body and also eventually the leader of the American Abolition Society. I've included a picture of him as an old man because I wanted to point out that even radical students become grandpas. And, uh, you know, this guy was not... Uh, he was not a flaming, radical guy who was always wanting to be out there. In fact, this is what uh, one historian says. He says, many historians regard Theodore Dwight Weld as the most important figure in the abolitionist movement, but his passion for anonymity long made him an unknown figure in American history. So historians are just kind of starting to rediscover this man who was at the center of everything. Uh, sort of like um, John Newton, um, who, who stood behind uh, William Wilberforce. Um, and many people haven't realized the important role that he had, but uh, uh, Theodore Dwight Weld was perhaps the most important figure in bringing indignation, moral indignation, against uh, slavery. And let me just give you a, a little story. This is a story uh, about Theodore Dwight Weld. As he goes out and preaches after seminary, he's, he's starting the uh, American Abolition Society, and he is teaching in different places to encourage people to get rid of slaves. And uh, so here's an example uh, from Zanesville, Ohio. Weld got there three weeks early, only to find the town shut up tight against him. As he wryly noted, he could not find even a shanty. He removed to the town of Putnam across the Muskingum River, where he did find a hall, but when he began to lecture in it, a mob from Zanesville broke the windows and tore the gate off. When Weld finished and came out, they stoned and clubbed him, and the alarmed custodians of the hall closed it. At this point, even the bravest of men might wonder if he had truly heard from God. Weld never doubted. Finding another hall, he suffered similar maltreatment until at last one night the mob listened. The next night he was given a pulpit. Then the good people of Zanesville pleaded with him to come back across the river. Sixteen nights later, hundreds rose to commit themselves to abolition. Well, that's the way it was for Theodore Dwight Weld. He was mobbed, he was stoned, he was brutalized, you know. He, his, his body was never the same. He was like um, uh, John Knox. Uh, his body 
suffered from the, the scars of standing and doing uh, uh, what he was called to do, but yet he remained faithful. Another person who was a key person was this young lady, Lyman Beecher's daughter, Harriet. Harriet Beecher Stowe. There's two things you need to, to know about her. She didn't believe in novels and she didn't believe in theater. She bought, she thought that, well, she had been really taught that uh, novels are a frivolous and unchristian type of thing to get involved in, either writing or reading, and theater is of the devil. And so she really didn't believe in either one of those things. But during the course of her trips into Kentucky and with the, the friend-raising, fundraising tour of, of her father for the seminary, she was utterly uh, offended the very idea that the, the seminary would be dependent upon slave owners like these for its funding. And so she, uh, she began to, to seek the Lord what to do about it, and, and a, a novel <laughs> started percolating up in her, her and uh, pretty soon she is writing Uncle Tom's Cabin, even though she doesn't believe in novels. And this is what she said later, I could not control the story. It wrote itself. I, the author of Uncle Tom's Cabin? No, indeed. The Lord himself wrote it, and I was but the humblest of instruments in his hand. To him alone should be given all the praise. So this, there was a, a publisher who was willing to publish it, and uh, it quickly became the most famous novel in the history of our country. 3,000 copies were sold the first day. A second edition was published the next week. A third appeared on April 1st. In less than a year, 100, 120 editions were printed, with total sales of more than 350,000. Within two years, the book was published in not only English, but French, Spanish, Danish, Finnish, Dutch, Flemish, Polish, Russian, Bohemian, Hungarian, Serbian, Armenian, Illyrian, Romaic, Wallachian, Welsh, Siamese, eventually published in 40 languages, okay? Well, now there's a guy uh, that's going to say, hey, we ought to make a play out of this. She doesn't believe in play. She doesn't believe in theater. And so a guy named um, George Aiken just decided he was going to write the play, even if she didn't uh, give her approval of it, which she never did. But uh, the dramatic version of Uncle Tom's Cabin was the most successful play ever produced in the American theater. At one time in the late 1850s, 16 companies were playing it simultaneously in various parts of the U.S., it was on the boards continuously somewhere in the United States from 1853 to 1934. That is surely the longest running play in American history. What was it about this that got people's attention? Well, it absolutely pulled on their heartstrings to destroy and get rid of slavery. It was the most amazing thing and all from someone who didn't believe 
in novels or theater. <laughs> and finally, let me just say that Charles Finney ended up, um, he never did give up evangelism, but he saw that in the 1830s, the power of God was on the wane. And, uh, and, but he was uh, uh, asked to be a um, professor at Oberlin Seminary, at Oberlin College, which was the first college that was going to open its doors equally to whites and blacks. This is truly a significant uh, transformational effect of the revivals that Finney conducted. Do you, do you get this? In other words, Finney didn't just stop with evangelism, but he saw that God wanted to break down the color barrier, and so then he devoted the rest of his life to doing just that.